Tuesday. So I'm here on this daily research study on myself. And um, <clears throat> this episode, so for Virgo season, is going to be a little bit... So I'm recording what? Today's the 5th. It's my lunar return. And for our astrology fans out there, those who love the Astros, um, your lunar return day happens about every 30 days. It is the position in which your moon returns to your natal moon. Your solar return is your birthday. It's when your own sun returns to the position of your natal sun. So, for, for example, um, my natal moon is at 5 degrees of Sagittarius. This morning the moon was at 5 degrees of Sagittarius, and hence my lunar return. And every month, your lunar return gives you kind of the assignment for the next 30 days. Last month it was a six house moon. You have to look at the houses, so you have to know your birth time to see the really nitty gritty aspects of your lunar return. So my lunar return last month was sixth house related, being very Virgo issues, health, and the sixth house being the natural home of Virgo, um, health. And as Virgo season rolls around, routine. And also um, accounting for my time. So here I am doing these um, daily uh, little podcasts. And I have to open. I'm in the sound booth, but it's hot in here. I might just go out into the middle of the basement. Um... So, lunar return this month for me is second house, which is security, possessions, more Taurian, Taurus-related Earth stuff. Interesting enough for me, my lunar returns are very earthy, so I'm having to focus on my own financial stability, and today, in honor of my lunar return, I cooked which I don't really do. Um, I actually was able to cook like a nice meal, listen to some meditations, and I'm going to say it, I took the night off stand-up. Why? Well, I'll get into it. Um, I was at Buco last night, great little place, little Ethiopian restaurant in Brooklyn on Franklin Avenue that I just really appreciate. And, um, I've been learning a lot, but I've been also starving for new material because I'm going on stage and I'm not being my authentic self. And I don't think pumping it out in the masculine energy is going to get me new material. I have to fucking ground myself and use my divine feminine energy to allow myself to relax because I realized, you know, I've been in a a spiral for these last five years in that I've just been pumping things out or been bedridden from depression and then I pump things out and then I get bedridden and that's been my pattern. So for me, 
right now, I refuse to do that ever again. I need to be accountable for my own emotional side. We all have our divine masculine and divine feminine sides to us. Um, Your chart, usually astrology chart, usually can indicate which side is more dominant and which side you need to kind of really learn about. So I was born naturally masculine, so I'm a very masculine girl. Um, I have an ascendant in Capricorn, and my sun sign is in Aries. Now my moon sign is in Sagittarius, so what that means for me and what you can look for for yourself is that what is the mix of elements, so mine being Aries fire, Sagittarius fire, and earth being capricorn and then you look at the rulers of each sign so for example aries is ruled by mars i look at my mars where is my mars it's conjunct my ascendant in capricorn so for me mars being the divine masculine on my ascendant means i do lead in the masculine energy i can tough it out capricorn can tough it out is one of the you know, survivors, so is Aries of the Zodiac, the fighters, the cardinals, the leaders. But what I also need to learn is my north node. So we all have our north node, which is our life lesson. My north node is in Taurus. Taurus is represented by Venus. And having a north node in Taurus means this is kind of your life direction. This is going to be where it's really hard to go. And so for me, resting and allowing experiences to happen instead of forcing my way through is actually what I need to learn. How to be more empress tarot card, how to be more grounded, how to not jump in before a little too early, not to be impulsive, even though I'm an Aries and it's part of my nature. So what I'm learning, what you learn on your lunar return is kind of like your homework for your emotional self. So emotionally, I am a a Saturn moon conjunction in the sign of Sagittarius. Sagittarius naturally ruled by Jupiter in my 11th house, which I'm doing right now. I am doing my lunar work. 11th house, mass media, communications but more on the electronic side friendships and community so I'm doing an astrology I'm doing my community work right now on my podcast conjunct Saturn Saturn natural zodiac sign Capricorn and also a co-share with Aquarius but it's very much Capricorn's planet home planet is Saturn so Saturn is father stuff moon is mother stuff my mother and father are connected in my natal chart Saturn conjunct the moon so for me Saturn okay so you look at the planet in in Vedic you look at the planet at the lowest degree to see who has the most power So my Saturn's at 9, my Moon's at 5, they're conjunct. Um, Conjunction you generally read within 2 to 3 degrees. Um, In Vedic they read within 10 degrees. 
So I'm learning kind of both. Vedic is kind of the traditional route of astrology, but if you do read your Vedic chart, it's going to move your sign over. So don't be freaked out because it's going to, it's going to all work out. (laughs) All the signs work out together. But my lunar return lesson this month is allow my divine feminine to really flow because if you think of the feminine it's very water energy very green earth very fertile earth very flowing river very oceans flowing connected to the tides poetry music storytelling and artistic endeavors i mean all the arts very feminine so right now i've been scraping and scratching on stage to even get a word out i mean last night i faked it i just was a person talking on a stage um i did well um better than i did when i ate royal ass the other day but you know divine orientation i guess i sat next to a musician last night Um, in the restaurant and he was telling me he played guitar all his life and I don't know if I can give out his name on the podcast but he's a really cool dude do I even have his name saved Um, but he was saying you know he played guitar all his life and that um, he he I I made him watch my set because he was waiting for takeout order and um he was telling me, you know, his history in New York City and being a musician and being on the writer side of music. So yes, he performs, but he's more somebody who goes in the studio and is more of a a person who's kind of like behind the scenes. Um, But when he showed me his, um, I'm going to try and see if I can get his name out because he was like super cool. And, And let me see if he's still saved in my thing. It was like, let me see if he's in here. He was just like mad cool, so let me see if I see him. Uh, I don't see him. Oh, Taharka Alim is his name, and he is really freaking awesome. And he is a musician in New York. You should check him out really cool guy gave me some advice watched my set I asked him for more of his musical perspective what he thought and he's like you have great tempo you have a great connection but you really need to bring out the power and I was like shit where's my power I feel like I've been deflated I'm trying to find my power again that's the whole purpose of these daily podcasts like you know, how do I find my power again? He was telling me about being a musician and how playing the guitar, he never gets it perfect. He never gets it right. And I feel the same way with stand-up. I can never do enough. When I get up in the morning, it's never enough. It's always on my mind though, right? So I've been going, 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 doing stand-up, but really what am I fucking saying? Am I going to get it out if I sign up for a mic tonight? Maybe. But what I think serves my energy best and I've been listening to a lot of different comics perspectives is that I'm not gonna go on stage unless I have something important to say and lately I haven't had anything important to say because I haven't been able to sit my ass down and really dig into the absolute truth of this which is 
my history in life and what I kind of really need to talk about is so strap in if you want to strap in to these podcasts they're very self-reflective um these are kind of like live journals I guess and I want to talk about um my experience working in a primate lab so I'm going to call this kind of an intro um but um because because um I gotta sit and remember things for a second uh so I'm gonna put this on pause and I'll be right back Uh, here I am all right so uh daily podcast uh not in the sound booth in the basement chilling I'm like paranoid because I'm watching my roommate's cat and I like usually let her in the basement when I'm recording but I'm afraid on some fundamental level she'll like pick up on the energy of this podcast and like hate me forever so cat Minetta is not joining me on this podcast today um so I want to talk if you're like a PETA person or you're a vegan or you don't like blood and guts probably not the episode for you peace the fuck out it's not for you it's an exclusive podcast club called christy needs to dig in to get new material so that she can fucking talk truth on stage instead of fall back on old jokes which is uh partly because I opened up for Joey Diaz and had, well, I sat, I sat, stood in the back of the theater when he was on stage and watched his set and was like, I need to fucking change my life right now and I need to change how I do things, uh, and I hate myself for, um, when I opened up. I fell back on old jokes because I was coming from a space of like, oh my god, I don't want to mess up, and I should have just messed up. That's where it was at. That's where it went wrong. I should have just fucked up. I should have just messed up in front of people. I should have just been able to mess up, which is what I do on stage in New York anyway, which is what I do on stage anywhere anyway. I should have just treated it like any other stage but I was like I need my jokes to be perfect I need to be a perfectionist but the truth is I usually talk off script anyway and I talked so on script and that's probably why all my comedy videos don't really translate because when I send them to bookers it's really scripted and that's not how I approach stand-up at all so back to life back to reality I don't know it's like I have to find some I I have to dig into spaces that I can't dig on stage because it's just not fucking funny it's I mean I have a little bit of material about primates and working with primates but that doesn't even scratch the surface on what I did and what happened and all the things I saw and felt and having IBS from it, it's just, you know, it's it's a lot. And I went back last night and just read one article about the research that I did to kind of confirm some stuff that I 
was like, did I make that up? No, you didn't. It's real. It, all the shit happened. Like, um, it's just, I've had so many iterations of my life before stand-up that it's like, how do I make that funny? You know, I was watching, um, Maria Bamford, um, on, on Instagram last night, just do like a one and a half minute, or no, it was like a four minute bit, just about seeing somebody from high school at Target, and I was like, I can't be that fucking funny, just talking about seeing somebody from high school at Target, that's brilliant, you know? Like, there are so many comics that just, I'm in awe of, like, right now, like, Tim Dillon, I think, is probably just, for God's sake, I saw him for my birthday, as a birthday gift from a friend of mine at the DC Improv, and he's just, like, a fuck, I just cried, I literally cried during his set, like, I was laughing so hard, and then at some point, I was just watching him, and, like, I got into this very emotional space, because I was like, fuck, you're never gonna be this funny. You're, no matter how hard I work, I'm never gonna be as funny as Tim Dillon. Never. I'm never gonna be that funny. That's the freeing thing about stand-up, too, is it's, like, I truly respect stand-up comics. Like, watching Joey behind the stage, like, I had to pee so bad. I was like, there is no way I'm gonna pee. Pee down your leg, bitch. You're gonna stand here, and you're gonna watch him. He stands and how he holds his ground and like he's big, you know, energy. So uh, if you don't know Joey Diaz, he's a hilarious comic and he's a storyteller, but he also has this very big presence and um, is watching him tell stories. He's, he's a storyteller and um, mainly, um, but I was like, whoa, like he brings the audience into him and his audience I kind of fucked it up because I talked to the audience and I made a lot of, I made a lot of technical errors too. Um, but I definitely like watched him. I watched um, Matt Fulcheron and before him and I just watched everybody's style and <sighs> still working on it, y'all. Still working on it. Got a lot to work on. Power is what um, my musician friend said last night, you gotta work on your power, got it all, you just gotta bring that power, and I was like, okay, here I am, (laughs) so, working on my power, which brings me to 2008, when my power transit began, uh, in astrology, in astrology, um, power, is represented by Saturn. And if you remember from the intro, who loves Saturn? Oh yes, that is Capricorn. And then Aquarius a little bit too. Um, And then Pluto, who's in love with Pluto? Scorpio. Scorpio loves Pluto. That's Scorpio's home, baby. Um, So Pluto is a planet of the underworld, or dwarf star, if you want to suck off Neil deGrasse Tyson, and, uh, Neil, we love you for your wine and your rapes, um, anyway, um, allegedly, and, you know, whatevs, but it, well, I mean, if you read the article about 
his me too and it's like a girl who's like i woke up he was inside me and you're just like okay neil and then it just got swept under the rug but then you have to like think about all these you know dave chappelle's bit and all this stuff but then you're like hmm i wonder if that's where he got the fermentation process from for his wine he loves wine he's a wine seller he's a wine connoisseur anyway which by the way if he loves wine so much, wine is represented by Venus and Demeter, and that's goddess worship, so we see worshiping her pussy in college. These are questions I need to ask Neil deGrasse Tyson. I know you don't believe that Pluto is a planet, but you definitely worship Venus through your uh, through your wine collection, so you gotta pick a side. Um, okay, anyway... Um, he could be Illuminati. You never know. So I started a primate job in 2008, mainly because Pluto moved into Capricorn, which was on my Mars and Descendant, and create and squared my sun. So it was called a Pluto transit. And so anybody in your life, when you go through a Pluto transit, that's when something dies off in your life. So my grandpa died, my dog died, and then a year later my horse had an accident and died suddenly. So there's a lot of death involved. I had a Pluto transit when I was 10 to my moon and my grandma died, my cat died, and my hamster died all within the same three months. So they say trouble comes in threes. Pluto rules three, the trinity, life, death, and rebirth. Um, so Pluto to my ascendant. Interesting enough, my ascendant is opposite my grandfather's son. So when he passed away, it was you see familial transits. You see how they how they do affect like families charts all kind of work together, even husbands and wives, and then the child they create. Generally, the charts are very connected. My dad, for example, is a Saturn moon. I am a Saturn moon. His, um, that is a familial marker. It's something that he gave to me. I inherited it. And then at my Saturn return, I had to live out his karma. Meaning, like, I had to, like, connect in to something that, like, he passed to me. And then I had to, like, take it a step further. So, my dad is a nurse in the military. He wanted to be a business person and own his own business, um, or a mortician. But he didn't, um, probably because of me. And uh, so what I did was I took it further. And um, my karma was to to carry, so it's like called, like a keeper of the flame. In a lot of ways, like the song by Miranda Lambert, you pass along the torch to your kin. And then they pass it along to theirs. Um, where you're healing the family light. So there is a torchbearer in every family. And um, in in mine, it's between the paternal line and my family. Some families, it's the maternal line. Every family line has karma. So when a Pluto transit comes around, that cleans. It's like the very deep cleaning, the cellular cleaning um, 
And so for a good while, we've been cleaning ourselves through the sign of Capricorn. As Pluto entered Capricorn in late 2007 and 2008, the stock market crashed. Capricorn rules um, capitalism. And we had a stock market crash. Um, And over these years, we've been reforming how we connect into Capricorn. Now, we're not going to really know the lesson until Capricorn fully enters Aquarius. Um, and that'll be the end of 2021 into early or 2020 into early 2021. So we're not really getting the extent of that lesson yet, but we capitalism as it is, is no longer going to exist. Now, Capricorn also does roll military industrial complexes. So that gets me into my first job. So in 2008, if you're young listening to this, you can be bored all you want, but go fuck yourself. Um, Because there's probably a reason why everything exists now, because the keepers of the flame. So um, in 2008, there was a war going on, which was basically rooted and spun out through 9-11, which I'll do 9-11's chart on 9-11. Um, and I'll try and do it respectfully, but I'm, I'm going to also touch into some of the, like, deep aspects of the chart as well. So, um, there's a war still going on now in many, many countries, um, and there's underground wars going on too. Pluto is the underworld, so Pluto wants us to see the underworld for what it is and expose the underworld, but the mafia is Pluto. Um, Deep, I mean, whether you believe in the Illuminati or not, those hidden elements of elites are being looked at, being assessed right now. You know, what are they actually doing? Who are they actually connected to? These are the things being brought up. So there's a lot. There's a big boom in the conspiracy theory side of life because Saturn and Pluto are are joining up together. Saturn is more the bureaucratic side. Pluto is more the mafia, mafioso side. So it's like, hey, uh, what the fuck is up with our bureaucratic system is the question. And what do we need to uncover is the question. So a lot of that's going on now. Probably more is going to be exposed, um, and we just have to kind of look at it. But the roots of where I started, where this girl who graduated college, uh, had a horse, worked through college, had two majors, <clears throat> many jobs, many interns, many internships, um, and I'll get into the, pol- the political side of my life as well on another podcast. Um, but it because the market crashed right before I walked across the stage, like we, I think within months before I walked across the stage, the market had crashed. Um, I had to find a job. I had this horse that was very expensive that I 
was getting help with family, but I was definitely also working and, and making sure I, I worked. God, I've been working for a long time. Um, but I just had to make sure I couldn't find anything and I wanted to go to vet school. That was my thing. I was going to take a year off. Um, I was getting pressure about either vet to go to medical school. Mm. And, um, I didn't want to go to medical school because I don't particularly want to work, didn't want to work with people. I wanted to work with animals and I had worked with animals all my life. So, um, the summer of 2008, after I graduated, my grandpa actually, so Pluto took out my grandpa's kidney. He was, he passed away really quickly. Um, he went into kidney failure, like kind of suddenly and, uh, went in the hospital and never left. And, um, that was the week before I graduated or my finals for college and a couple weeks before that, my childhood dog just, like, couldn't walk anymore. He just, his arthritis, his arthritis got to him. He, my baby boy, he just, like, he couldn't live anymore, basically. He, we think he had probably maybe bone cancer or something happened, but he left this earth, and then um, we had... And then I grew, I walked across the stage and I was like, well, um, and I just kind of never processed that either. It's interesting when you have so much death. I, I think I'm so accustomed to death in my life. I was like, I'm not going to go Scorpio today, but you know, let's talk about death. I'm so used to people dying and leaving me <laughs> that it was like, all right, here we go. I best find a job. And, um, I kind of just went on. Um, my poor grandpa was not a nice guy. <laughs> and, um, when he passed away, there were like five people at his funeral. Um, also because most of them died. Um, but it was just a very interesting experience there, like learning about karma and how if you're not a nice person, people, like, if you die, like, your funeral's gonna be mad awkward. His funeral was mad awkward. Like, I, if he's here, you know, peepaw, seriously, dude. Um, but my dad had a dream that the dog was with him in purgatory and he was praying, so who knows? Um, but he was a cancer son, so cancers can be very prideful. Um, my first job out of college was, I, I always walk dogs, I always help cat or animals sat during the summers, um, always with animals, muck horse stalls is my MO, like always on the farm, always cleaning horse stalls, um, so I was lucky that I kept that work going after I graduated college, but I needed like money to pay horse rent and then, you know, my own rent at some point, but I had to kind of squeeze out living with my family for a while after college. Um, and I was walking, I had gotten a, a dog walking job through a neighbor 
there was this lady and furries i'm gonna use your fucking name bitch because you're not even gonna listen to this and you know what you're a cunt um Anne was this sort of mystery neighbor on our block she was single i grew up in a nice neighborhood um single always had these gigantic dogs they were um newfoundland so newfoundlands are kind of like these big hairy dogs that are kind of like ponies they're just like very strong and they're meant to be herding dogs basically she always had them drove nice cars had this beautiful house to herself and nobody really knew what she did at all right nobody we knew like people were like oh she did like work in science but for the most part I tried to stay out of the suburbia bullshit because that in and of itself is like terrible and I hated all the fucking people I grew up with who were assholes to each other for money like who had the most money who had the best cars who had all that shit I really kept to myself but um Anne needed somebody to walk her giant dog and her dog was not like the easiest to handle um it was a giant dog that like jumped on people and needed somebody that could like manhandle a dog and and somebody's like oh well christy she has horse so she doesn't really care and she loves animals so i went over i met this lady for the first time and she taught me how to, she's like okay well you're gonna walk my dog and all this stuff and created this giant animal in her beautiful house um and um from there it was interesting because when she was like teaching me how to walk her dog she was just like so I hear you do science because I had um graduated as a biology major you guys this might not even be a usable story but fuck it I'm gonna keep going I graduated as a biology major, but in order to graduate, you needed to do senior seminars, so senior research projects. So that included two 30-page papers because I had two different majors, and then I had a senior research class. Oh, no, no. Yeah, two senior seminars, one for political science, and I was an international um, major, and then one for biology, which was a research study that we had to basically do a poster presentation on and then the year prior I did a um seminar at a program that I did so I did technically three senior seminars um and so one of my senior my science senior seminar was in inconclusive for one thing there was no fucking conclusion but whatever and I got, um, I basically was util- utilizing, <laughs> this is so bad, this is so bad, uh, the animals I have killed, okay, so, in research, you definitely use a lot of animals as your prototypes, um, your animal models, so I worked with this professor, who had a research study in basically 
testing, uh, gosh, the ligaments of starfish and sea creatures, um, to test for the genetic components. And we basically use that, uh, we basically use like, um, a physics, I don't even remember what it was called, it was like a tensile, I don't fucking remember what it was called, but we tested, melted, we had to melt them ourselves. I had to melt starfish, you guys. I had to melt sea cucumbers. What else did I melt? Sea urchins. And what else? It was sea urchins, sea cucumbers, which basically look like sea pickles. And starfish. And they were so cute and they didn't want to die. And we had to, like, scrape off their, their like, calcium and, and, and then put it in this, like, physics machine that I can't, like, a tensometer? Tensometer. And then my physics people, um, and then test it for, um, uh, to see basically, I don't know, like, this is how bad I, I was. <laughs> like, I just did, I spent a whole summer doing this. Um, we tested them to see how strong they were basically, um, with the idea that this could be used for people that have any sort of genetic muscular disease, like, um, and the idea of, like, maybe infusing starfish ligaments or, yeah, tendons, um, as some sort of, uh, use, I guess, injectable use, and then we had to compare them based on genetic components as well, which I don't remember how I got to that, but I've killed a lot of animals that didn't deserve to be killed, um, and (laughs) so that wasn't even the first experiment where I killed animals. The first one was in my freshman year of college, when we were testing fish to see if any runoff from at, from farms would kill them. So basically I took um, syringes of pesticides and put them, put droplets into fish tanks and uh, voila, every morning I would find dead fish um, and I kept the survivors as my pets and they were the best pets ever until they died all at once because, I don't know, because every time I go away, somebody dies. Um, I don't know. I'm not putting that out there, but it's like a fear of mine. So I, in 2008, fast forward back into 2008, I'm walking this dog and, and the neighbor is like, oh, I hear you do science what kind of projects do you do? And I told her about melting starfish and shit. And she, her eyes, y'all, her eyes lit up like it was Christmas. She was like, you kill animals? She didn't say it that way, but that's basically what it was all about. And I was like, yeah, I feel, she's like, so you don't mind animals and big animals? And I was like, no, I don't. And she was like, are you looking for a job? And I was like, actually I am. She's like, where do you work now? And I was like, I was like waitressing at this biker sports bar and it was, you know, it was what it was. Kept the horse. Uh, it, it allowed me to buy big bags of beet pulp and sweet senior feed for my generic thoroughbred, for my generic, 
my generic baby. Oh, you're not gen- uh, crazy. I'm insane, y'all. Um, for my geriatric thoroughbred. <laughs> so, um, oh, uh, I don't know if I want to keep going with this. Okay, so she basically brings me to the lab for a an interview. She's like, oh, we work with primates. If you're good with primates, if you're good with animals, can you take vitals? I was like, oh yeah, I've worked at vets offices and stuff like that. And so she brought me in for an interview. I pretty much got hired on the spot, I think. Um, she walked me through the labs and you guys, it's the first time I've ever seen, you know, other at, than at the zoo, primates up close and personal. You know, this is not a normal thing. I want to do this podcast justice because these guys meant so much to me, these primates. Um, and there were, you, you have to swipe into the lab, you have a key card, everything like that. So you're walking in these labs and they had an upstairs lab and they also had a basement lab. Um, and I got hired and it's just interesting how it kind of all worked out. Um, how deep do I want to go here? <laughs> the more, what's the moral of the story? So the lab experiments that I was doing, um, they were doing blood experiments and then they were doing gastrointestinal experiments. And one of the things that I had to check on was that I had a job actually in New York City as a temp job, a longer term temp job, where I was basically doing data checks on my own, on the experiments I was on. Um, And it was called Project Osiris. You can look it up, um, owned by Mesoblasts, or yeah, in coordination with a company called Mesoblasts. It's a stem cell project of prochymal cells, uh, basically like if you, so stem cells, so like cells that are able to regenerate. And the project was called Osiris. Now it's always been in my mind. And especially when I did psychedelics and did DMT for the first time, you know, you're working out a lot of trauma. If you even go to do something like mushrooms or LSD or ayahuasca or, DMT or whatever your calling is. And my calling was DMT. I wanted to understand if my karma that I incurred working with these primates, what that was all about. And that's when I met Isis, the goddess in a temple pyramid, and she instructed me on the sacred feminine and working with my energy And it got me thinking, if her name is Isis, if she's called Isis the goddess, right? And I was doing projects that were basically government experiments for defense agencies, which they were. Then why is it called Osiris? That's always been my question. Because Osiris was the son in Egyptian culture or Egyptian history of Isis. So why am I looking at the son of the mother? And why is that, or why are we fighting ISIS, right? So the idea of these stem cell projects were, if you read the studies, to work with quote-unquote Crohn's disease, but the money behind it is far too big for that. It's 
millions and millions of dollars. Big change, right? They had meetings at Camp David, for example. So um, my question was always, why? Why is it named this? I understand that, you know, Osiris was a god of regeneration, much like Pluto. He was very deeply connected to the underworld. Isis is the mother goddess, the goddess of love, the goddess of the sacred divine feminine. And so I always wondered, why is it called a war on Isis if Isis represents love? We're fighting love. We're fighting the mother by these groups that are literally created as a result of some sort of military industrial complex. So I always kind of questioned that. But when you need a job and when you need money and when you don't know any, like I did, everybody I worked with, we had some kind of health issue that was going on in the labs. Everybody had stomach issues pretty much. Um, and then later a friend of mine had blood issues um, after that. I don't know if it's related and I'm not. But basically the experiment was we doused primates with very high levels of radiation. Um, and we snuck them into the main people hospital. So if you've ever gotten a radiation treatment at University of Maryland, Baltimore on Pratt Street, you've shared the same um, machine as rhesus macaque primate. So, um, little known fact. Um, but we used the hospital machine. We had to roll them in, um, and like cover them up. It was really kind of, it was terrifying. Um, not for those, I always like freak out that the people I work with are worked with are going to listen and like roll their eyes. Like, oh, she's making such a big deal. It wasn't that much of a big deal, but I don't really think like, I didn't know that that wasn't normal at the time because it was my job. Right. Um, but even with our experiments, we had to prep them for radiation treatment. Now, when you work with primates, and I've worked in two primate labs in my life. I worked for an NIH lab, and I worked for this lab at Maryland, Baltimore. Um, they're horrendous, and the conditions are great for what they are, meaning the one I was in, the first one I was in, had a lot of money. Um, they hadn't always had a lot of money, but they just had increased their contracts um, because of the military spending at the time, us being in a major war, two major wars, um, the United States, and um, the first lab, I don't know, it was, I used to call it a factory, it was just it, I mean, everything you can think of, it was very clean. There, I've been told that there are many primate labs that are really, there's bugs everywhere. And the second lab I was in, there were bugs and we had to shower out and you'd have like roaches in the shower. Um, but even that one wasn't as bad as ones I've heard of in Florida. And there's other labs around the country that had reputations 
um, I was in a fairly well-known lab. Um, the, the directors that I worked under were really in the primate world, very well-known. And so I see these motherfuckers cause they're still in my neighborhood. Um, my parents' neighborhood and occasionally they'll drive by and I flip them off every time every fucking time, or I give them side eye if I see them walking the, if I see my neighbor who hangs out with the other boss I had, I had two bosses, basically, if I ever see them, I never respect them, they make a lot of money, and I just went through hell, it's not even the power dynamics that happen because they're military contracts, but the power dynamics that happen when you're a minor, like, okay, so lab ratio-wise, only, there weren't very many women, we had, we got more women, um, but our boss that was a woman, my neighbor, was a piece of shit, and she hated women, and she hated me, and I got along with everybody, but it taught me a couple of things. You know, here I was 22 and didn't have um, a voice to speak up for myself at the time. I was very quiet and I really just wanted to thrive and do a good job and, you know, make sure that the animals were taken care of. And, you know, you're seeing a lot of stuff and I'm not really saying what I saw, but to take down an animal that is the size of, say, a five-year-old, the only way you can take them down to do experiments on them is through ketamine. So even to this day, I'll never take ketamine. I know ketamine is used for a lot of people with depression. It is something I will never do and honor these primates um, because it. I've used it so many times on animals. Um, and... A lot of times when you give a primate ketamine, you have to do use what's called a squeeze cage because when they're going under, in order for you to take them out of their cage, to basically probe them and check their, you know, you're checking their temperature rectally. I mean, we're basically me tooing these animals. That's what we're doing in these experiments. And um, I try to be as kind. I mean... When you work with primates, I would walk into the room and feel all their energy and feel their pain, and a lot of them were very confused. A lot of them, we were told that they were bred um, in captivity, but what's happening in India, and so a lot of these animals are imported from India. Rhesus macaques are kind of the number one species that you see in pictures of people that go and take pictures with primates in India. So rhesus macaques are kind of a nuisance, I guess, for tourists. And um, a lot of them are imported and live caught. And they come in these giant wooden crates when they bring them to the lab. Now they've already gone through um, a period where I think it's a month of, um, basically isolation 
and making sure that they don't have any diseases. But rhesus macaque primates and other what we call in the field quote-unquote old world primates, which is also a term I have a lot of problems with, hashtag triggered, because old world primates are considered, you know, before what Christopher Columbus discovered the new world of South America or of, you know, when before explorers came over and discovered the new world. Christopher Columbus did not discover South America. But I sound like such a fucking moron and I've done so much stuff. Okay, this is the hard part. This is where my Pisces Mercury comes out. It's very hard for me to get this shit out. Um, I'm not a moron. But sometimes I feel like the biggest moron. Okay. Um, but New World primates are species found in the Caribbean, species found in Central America. I'm okay. I'm having a really hard time. Hold on. Hold on. Um, let me just look up New World primates because I don't want to get it wrong. New World Primates are five families of primates found in Central and South America. The five okay. And they're not in the Caribbean. I'm retarded. Um, okay. Old World Primates are found in East Asia and African regions. And let me see if there are any species. Um, there are no species. Um, and uh, primates. Hold on, hold on. If you're still listening, I really feel bad for you right now. Okay. Uh, there are primate. I just want to know what primate species live in the Caribbean. Cause, okay. I'll uh, in Saint Lucia. Okay. There are primates there. I don't know what if there's an indigenous species, but basically, when I worked at the other lab, second lab, I worked with both old world and new world monkeys. And in the first lab, I only worked with rhesus macaques, um, one, one particular species. And the other one I worked with, so many different species. And you have to know for each species what you can and can't use, what you can and can't eat. Some eat insects, some eat fruit, some only eat, um, like they've basically feed, just like dog feed, specialized and made by Purina um, for primate species as well. So we fed them basically like dog food, but it was specialized for them. Um, and also bananas and fruit and grapes. And for an old world species, you're basically working, you're basically with like a child. So you can feed like graham crackers, peanut butter. Um, and a lot of times when they were going through, um, radiation treatments, they didn't want to eat but I would basically treat them like a cancer patient, and I made some snacks for them, um, 
to make sure that they got their intake of food and to the point that I got yelled at for overfeeding. But for me, I was just on the research assistant end, so I was doing like daily vitals and stuff like that. I wasn't on the development end. I was just a baby bio researcher and, you know, checking Pedialyte. Like, it's basically like taking care of sick children, except they're in captivity in cages that are way too small for them. Um, and it was emotional because there was a lot of death involved and they're, you're euthanizing animals once experiment starts. I mean, you have animals in holding, so, I mean, the lab, I was the first lab, there weren't many. There were only about 250 primates. The second one, there was like, gosh, 1,500 to two. There was, there was a couple, there was at least a thousand plus, um, in different rooms, different, um, wings, different experiments and groups, um, and some of them were very VIP, uh, top, because SARS back in the day was huge, so they had to bring in SARS and start a SARS experiment, and so these things will never end. If you're a PETA person and you're listening to this, my number one thing to people in uh, freeing animals. Like I have a lot of friends that are animal activists. Please don't go into a lab and crash a lab and release their animals because what happens is when that happens and there was a lab it happened to when I think I was working at the time, it happened overseas in the UK. All of those animals have to get euthanized. So when you try to quote unquote free the animals, the rats and anything like that, they have to euthanize the entire lab because it's basically considered um, a, an, a corrupt experiment in that they don't know who, like, who's been infected, who hasn't been infected, who's bred with who, if they're rats, um, if anybody got bitten, things like that. So you have to be really careful if you're an animal rights activist because the best thing you can do is just uh, spread awareness on not eating meat, things like that. Um, that's probably more helpful, but my thing is I'm on the fence because if you've ever had strep throat, which is super easily treatable in this time in our lives, you might want to thank a primate. You know, if you've ever had any type of venereal disease, you might want to thank a primate. So, if you are an animal activist, which I am, I don't believe in primate research. I believe that none of us deserve it. <laughs> but since we're on this planet trying to survive, and if you've gotten gonorrhea or syphilis or any of those things, and you're a dirty, dirty hippie, and you're like, man, I just have to go to the clinic, man. You might want to thank an animal for that shit. Just saying. Just saying. Um... But do I think animal models are important at this time in our lives? It's what we have and what we know. Do I think we should do it? Oh, it's so rough, you guys. It's so rough to do it. Um, I know there's on the rat side, the mice and the rat. I love them so much. They're so cute. I've seen some bullshit with them in other labs. I saw an asshole 
at another university I work with walk across a hall with a rat by its tail walk across a hall. Now, that is the biggest no-no in animal research. If you ever switch rooms, you have to have your animal contained and covered as a respect and also because it's considered an allergen. So to see somebody be outright disrespectful, it was the first time in my life I've ever like called somebody a motherfucker. I was just like, you better not fucking do that. That You need to respect that animal. And like, he like looked at me and apologized, but he knew he was doing the wrong thing. And I hope he got his fucking PhD. And you know what? I hope that rat bit his finger. Um, but rat and mice species are generally super, um, uh, they're bred within. So for those who are rat and mice fans, understand that for the most part, that is actually the most sustainable. Like if we're thinking about the ecosystem of research and animals, the most sustainable portions of it are with Drosophila flies, so regular fruit flies, rats and mice, because they're all more internally bred and you can pretty much order them out and uh, get a new colony and things like that pretty easily. Um, They try and be very efficient with that. Primate species, I don't know how how they've really changed over the years, but they were definitely shady in a lot of respects. So this has been a really long podcast today. I didn't think I would go this long, but it's a lot on my brain that went through my actual, I don't know, I just, I had a lot of things to think about there's still a lot of stories with the primates still a lot of things I've seen but I loved working I mean the other the other side to it was like you develop love for these animals and then you have to watch them die and you have to watch them go and some died basically as a waste of life um a lot of times some were just old or at the end of a study or had been there too long or they needed room and I definitely had an evil boss that like kind of kept tabs on which uh animals that everybody at the lab like really loved um but there is one story where at least what I was told I named this primate Annabelle (laughs) she was a little uh female and I wasn't able when I left the lab a lot I had a lot of the guys that I work with kind of check on her and this one guy Dan that I work with Dan Cohen what's up man hope you're doing well um took care of her when I left the lab and like checked on her and like used to keep in touch with me on her and he basically said they quote-unquote saved her and sent her to um Raleigh Durham where they North Carolina where they do have a primate breeding facility where she could basically be kept as a mother and breed internally. So hopefully she was saved and not put onto a study and hopefully she could have just been a mama um, for her life. But in the long run, what are they breeding for? You know, what are they breeding these animals for in research anyway to be sent out to studies but at least she was I 
I'm a very large proponent of internal breeding programs for, for research studies, um, and not live catching animals, putting them on a boat or a plane, usually a plane, a cargo hold in a plane, and then sending them to the U.S. to labs. I'm very against that. Um, so this has been a really fun episode, and I hope you really enjoyed it, and, um, yeah, y'all, I'll be back tomorrow for another daily episode of trying to find material that's hilarious. This is so funny, you guys. So funny. I hope you laughed through this whole episode of me thinking and feeling and saying shit. Okay, have a good day. Goodbye.